Welcome to House Calls, where we get to talk to investment bankers from Kane Brothers, a division of Key Bank Capital Markets Incorporated. I'm your host, Dave Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health and the author of The Customer Revolution in Healthcare, Delivering Kinder, Smarter, Affordable Care for All. I co-author a regular thought leadership article with a rotating cast of senior bankers from Kane Brothers. In each piece, we do a deep dive on a fascinating sector of the dynamic healthcare industry. For this House Calls podcast, I'm joined by Carl Hardy, one of Kane Brothers' newest and best managing directors, and a great addition overall to their team, which is also great. Today, we're going to be talking about the medtech manufacturing sector. Carl? Welcome to House Calls, where the bankers like you are always in. Yeah. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Terrific. It's been a while since we've talked about medtech on House Calls, and it seems like we should be getting back to that most interesting topic. We've never, ever talked about medtech manufacturing, so this should be a really interesting conversation for our audience. I know I learned a lot about the sector working through our article titled MedTech Follows Pharma, the Rapid Growth of Outsourcing and Medical Device Manufacturing. That title articulates your thesis, Carl, the MedTech manufacturing sector is now going through a similar outsourcing journey as the pharma sector went through about 15 years ago, with some differences and nuances that investors and even original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, will find interesting. So let's dig into it. To start with the basics, Carl, what does medtech even mean and what's a medical device? Give us a sense of the range of products involved from the basic to the most sophisticated, and also give us a sense of the absolute scale of the market. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a lot. So let me let me back up and unpack that uh, a little bit. So medtech, when we refer to medtech, we're talking about medical technology and specifically medical devices. I know a lot of people may hear medtech and confuse that with software or technology platforms for healthcare delivery. But really what we're talking about when we use the, that term medtech, medical devices, it includes everything from you know, very generic or over-the-counter products like bandages, cotton swabs, Q-tips, things like that, all the way up to very complex medical devices, which are things like active implantable metal, which are integrated into or implanted into the body, and that then relay their findings or um, levels of certain things within, inside the body to software platforms outside the body. And they're, they're regulated through apps or different software platforms to control your the rhythm of your heart, like integrated pacemakers or neurological implanted devices with integrated sensors, to secrete drugs, you know, to control epilepsy or other things like that. So huge, broad range of products, and, and we kind of classify them as class one devices, which are the most basic and, and kind of generic, you know, things like talked about those swabs or bandages or gowns, PPE equipment, you know, masks, things like that. Which And then you go to class two devices, which are a little bit more complex, and then class three devices, which are a much smaller part of the market, but the most complex, often implanted devices or instruments in those procedures, things like that. You know, in terms of size, you know, you asked about that. I would say that the global medical device market was about $560 billion in 2022, and now it's it's expected to 
almost double over the next few years. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, well, by 2031, you know, we expect it to be close to a trillion dollars, or about $965 billion worldwide, you know, growing at, at a little over 6% a year. And that's driven by a number of factors. We're seeing several countries, large or companies with large populations, their healthcare is increasing, their focus on medical devices is improving and increasing, and they're spending more on healthcare. And then we're seeing a lot of development in other countries as well, constantly pushing the envelope to develop new devices, new technology, and utilize that in patient care. Clearly a fast-growing marketplace with lots of variation and subcomponents to it. Why don't you describe the traditional medtech manufacturing process to lay the ground from where it's been to where it's going? You know, How does a medical device or product go from conception to market? Yeah, I don't think a lot of people understand how long it takes to get some devices to market or what that process is. So to start with, a medical device is is born in, in concept. Somebody will have an idea or maybe a physician realizes that, hey, you know, we're doing this procedure this way. If we had this other type of device or some type of instrument, we could do it a little bit differently. And so Someone actually has a concept or an idea of a new device or a new procedure or instrument. And so they start working through the steps to get that device to market. Now, it it can take anywhere from like one to seven years to actually get a device commercialized and get it to market. And the steps involved include things like initial prototyping. You know, there's, there's design and engineering initial prototyping, you know, creating sketches, thinking through how to construct the device or or put in the you know build the device then as you have some prototypes you get into things like clinical trials and testing you know that can be on you know cadavers or virtually early on just thinking through how to hold the device or how the device will be used or implanted you have human factors testing you know with physicians and nurses coming in to give their input on how it feels if it's an instrument in their hands, if the ergonomically they can use it or hold it for this type of procedure. You know, you go back and there's several rounds of those types of early stage testing, prototyping, more design engineering, uh, more human factors testing. And then you get into more kind of human trials and pre preclinical trials where people are volunteering to have this new procedure done or this new product or this new implant or this new device used and offering their feedback. And there's those are not the same level of, of kind of trials that like a drug would go through where you have three stages and, and varying degrees of kind of populations, how, how many people you're using that on. They're usually much smaller, and a lot of them are even being done virtually now. And there's multiple iterations of that. And then as you get to a what is thought to be a final product, you then submit that through the FDA to to get a 510K, you also have to go through the FDA to get every piece of machinery that that device will be manufactured on validated or approved and specced into that device. So So that product or that medical device can only be manufactured on those specific machines that have been included in the 510K in the validation process. And then once they're approved, it's also uh, it goes through what we call kind of market access or reimbursement uh, discussions where it's then if it's a new device, we have to define it with medical code uh, for reimbursement by payers or insurance providers. And if you can't get the insurance providers to to agree to pay for that type of product or procedure or instrument being used, then oftentimes it 
it never becomes viable and never even gets to market. So that's a critical piece of the commercialization process as well. So those are all just the steps to get a medical device to market, you know, approved by the FDA and then get it, you know, into physicians' hands. Then you go through this whole manufacturing process where you have to have, now that you've got it made, you have to design it almost for manufacturing, super large scale volumes of that product. So you find someone to, to manufacture that for you or you do it in-house. And then downstream, you have to find a way to assemble it, st- uh, package it, sterilize it, you know, and get it into out through distribution and into the hands of either the, the large platform distributors or the end users eventually as well. So there's a lot of different steps. There's a lot of upfront work, like I said, that one to seven years, and then you get it to market and, and it kind of takes over from there and kind of the manufacturing distribution process. But that's generally how it is set up to get a product to market. Well, no wonder these devices are so expensive, right? That is a very laborious and thorough process to go through, not only to get the tech approved, but to demonstrate that the manufacturing is building the device as intended. And of course, nothing goes anywhere without a payment code. Let's just talk now about how the market's evolving and the process you outlined for getting the concept and the device approved, then manufactured and paid for you know, because it runs through the FDA, while not identical, is very similar to what goes on in pharma. And in many respects, almost all of what big pharma does today is the kind of regulatory approval and then the marketing of the product, part of which involves convincing commercial insurers to pay for a drug. And they've are pretty much outsourcing everything else, including in many cases, the the original idea creation and certainly the manufacturing. And I'm of the opinion that basically companies should outsource when somebody else does it better than they do. And that does appear to be where now MedTech is going with devices as well. So Carl, could you just talk a little bit about your thoughts on outsourcing and do they mirror mine? And then, you know, secondly, how it specifically pertains to the med tech arena and how it's changing. Yeah, I'll start by saying that I completely agree with you, David, that if somebody can can manufacture something better, faster, cheaper, or has additional capabilities that others don't so that they can do something you know, more complex than I, I absolutely think that they should be the ones manufacturing it. And really that's though that concept is really what's driving the outsourcing in the, the med tech space, you know, similar to the pharma market, which we've seen this transition over time, as you mentioned, to where really the large pharma companies now are nothing more than kind of design, you know, R and D and marketing houses. What we're seeing now with these large med tech OEMs, you know, like companies um, Medtronic, Stryker, J&J, Synthes, Zimmer Biomed, and, you know, many others, is that over time, as their budgets get constrained, margins get constrained, you know, everyone's dealing with labor issues and supply chain issues and things like that. And there's other things, too, as other medical devices get more complex, these companies are, have start to realize like, wow, these other contract manufacturing organizations can do this stuff 
faster, more efficiently, or better than we can. And so they've started to outsource that over time. So, and I think it started in, in uh, as you'll see in the paper, in, in some very complex areas within you know, medical devices in the past, like, you know, cardiac devices and, and products or infusion therapies or, you know, cardiovascular applications. And the OEMs have just realized that, look, we can no longer do this in-house and and efficiently hit them, you know, the margin that we need to, to make this profitable for us. Or they may not have, have had the machinery to do it or whatever the case may be, but they've started to realize these contract manufacturers, we can outsource this to them and they can do it better than we can. We can make it cheaper and make these products that are more complex. And we will just focus on the, the research and design or development aspect of this and then the marketing because we have the, the full sales team downstream to help them market these products. And so that's what we've seen start to happen now in the, the contract medical manufacturing space. And it's not to the same level of, of outsourced manufacturing that we've seen in the pharma space yet. And it I would say it varies by therapeutic area or medical device area. And we've seen you know upwards of close to 50% outsourced medical manufacturing in certain areas. And then there's other parts of that kind of development value chain is how I refer to it, that is becoming, it's starting to be outsourced more. And we're seeing a lot of growth just in outsourcing in those particular areas over the last few years. Uh Like I said, it's still 15 years probably behind the pharma space, you know, in pharma services, but we see it following that same path and that same kind of developmental outsourcing trend that we've seen in other industries. Really, really interesting. I bet it won't take them 15 years to catch up, even if they are 15 years behind. It's just the pace of everything is accelerating at an amplified rate. You know, I got to say, when I think of the OEMs, I'm just struck by how many of them are in Indiana for whatever reason. Is is there some reason why Indiana appears to be capital of so much of this med tech manufacturing and concentration? Well, there is a there's a huge group of people in in Indiana that were that were originally migrated from Germany, um, and they settled down in like Warsaw, Indiana, and near Fort Wayne, Indiana, and and kind of north of Indianapolis. Yeah, and it, it was a lot of these German immigrants, from my understanding, that were precision machinists for other industries. And they settled there in in Indiana. And so there's this kind of huge community of very technical machinists is kind of how it it started. And then they they kind of branched into medical devices, you know, and started doing CNC machining and, and lathes and gun drilling, you know, all these different types of metal machining capabilities. And so a lot of these these OG healthcare companies, if you want to call them that, or these OEMs, you know, they set up shop right down the street from, you know, or, or in these areas where there are all these highly skilled, highly trained technicians in, you know, working with metal and metal machinists. So they set up shop nearby there. And so Zimmer Biomet and yeah. Stryker, yeah. I think Medtronic and, and a lot of those big, you know, it may not be their headquarters, but they all have a facility or a presence there just down the street and they all pool, they all hire, you know, these, some of these early immigrants and um, 
And now it's like they're third or fourth generation families that are there and work in that area. And so there's that, at least that's how it's been explained to me in my understanding of why Indiana is such a hotbed for medical device manufacturing. I was hoping that wasn't throwing a curveball at you with that question, but it just popped into my head. You know, it, it takes an ecosystem to develop an industry like this. So, Carl, you had some very interesting ways of breaking down the medtech manufacturing value chain, broke it into three distinct segments. Could you share that thinking with our audience? I think they'll find it most interesting. Sure. So, so I view you know, this entire process of developing a medical device and getting it manufactured and then getting it out to and into distribution. I I view it as as one continual kind of value chain. And and I break it down into three different sectors, which I refer to as medtech CROs or medtech CRO services is kind of that first piece that that in developing a device and getting it to market, getting it to, you know, commercialized medical device to market. And then the, the second piece of that value chain is the the outsourced medical manufacturing in which the, the contract manufacturers are actually producing, you know, at large volumes, those medical devices. And then the, the third piece of that value chain is what I refer to as post-manufacturing services, and it, it includes things like medical coatings, which is C-O-A-T-I-N-G-S. So applying hydrophobic, hydrophilic coatings, antimicrobial or antithrombogenic coatings, things like that, as well as inspection, cleaning, passivation, sterile packaging, labeling, all of that kind of stuff gets put into that post-manufacturing bucket. And, and as I've said, we've seen varying degrees of outsourcing across all three of those areas. I would say it's there's more outsourcing across that that middle section where we we see all the manufacturers and that's there's been more outsourcing in that area for longer, but now we're seeing a lot more outsourcing at the the medtech CRO space as well as the post manufacturing services space and those areas are really taking off as well. We see a lot of opportunities there going forward. Really, really interesting. So let's let's dive into this a little bit more. And we just all were at the Kane Brothers annual healthcare conference in New York, and you were quite busy attending to your, your clients and conducting one-on-one sessions and, and briefing investors and so on. But I know that's not the only event you go to. So as you've been sort of taking the pulse of the industry right now in a very tough year in many respects. Any perspectives you can share on where these outsourced companies are at in their evolution? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, you mentioned early on that this has been kind of a tough year. I think for a lot of these companies, it's it's been interesting because there were areas that were harder hit than others during the pandemic over the last few years. And there was a lot of interest in this space in 2021. You know, we saw a ton of deals, uh, you know, new acquisitions get accomplished that year. 2022 was, was a little bit of a down year as a lot of these companies were impacted by material pricing issues, labor constraints, supply chain issues and problems. And it, it seemed like 
we were turning the corner kind of at the end of 2022, early 2023, and there was a lot of optimism in the market. You know, as you as you read earnings releases from the large OEMs, everybody was seeing higher than expected volumes of procedures across the board. You know, it seemed like everybody was very optimistic. The volumes were kind of back to where they were, you know, maybe pre-COVID or, or, or almost there, even across like elective surgeries and especially the large joint orthopedic sector, which seemed to be kind of the, the last sector to really rebound from COVID. And so there was a lot of optimism if you went to like some of the shows early in the year, the MDNM West, the, the medical design and manufacturing show in Anaheim, which is one of the biggest uh, every year. And there was a lot of activity in the space. We saw a lot of companies either being acquired or launching a process. And it's been interesting in the last half of the year, kind of since midsummer, things have, have slowed down considerably across the med tech space. And part of that has been some of these large OEMs, which in dealing with some of the supply chain issues last year, I mean, seeing lead times tick up across the space in terms of when they could get product. A lot of them put in huge orders for things to stock up, you know, and build their inventory because they weren't sure how long supply chain issues would persist or materials pricing issues persist, things like that. And so they built these huge stocks of inventory. And now we're seeing as a lot of these OEMs are drawing down that inventory. They're starting to realize like, wait, we're carrying way too much of these products. Let's push out orders. Um, mm -hmm you know, for six months in some cases or longer. And so, you know, I'd say like there's a lot of contract manufacturers that are feeling the pressure now as, as these OEMs push out their you know current orders or what they were projecting for this year to draw down those inventory stores down to a more reasonable level. And, you know, and, th and this tends to happen, as you guys know, <laughs> across the industry. I mean, this happens all the time. And I would say OEMs are notoriously bad at managing their demand and, and predicting their demand. And it's just kind of this running joke, I think, across the industry, if you talk to any of the manufacturers. And so now they're, you know, trying to weather through some of this quiet period where the orders have slowed down, preparing for the inevitable surge. Yeah. Surge. Yeah. And the whipsaw coming back from these OEMs where they're going to eventually realize like, oh, we should have started ordering again, you know, several months ago. And so then they're going to order this huge amount again. And and so that's some of that is kind of impacting, you know, the space right now. I would say that we're still seeing volumes of procedures continue to increase. We're working through the backlog of orthopedic procedures or elective procedures that built up during COVID. And I still think those we'll see those volumes of those types of procedures continue to increase as they continue to work through that that backlog for a few years, I believe. So there's, you know, there's still challenges right now in this space, but I think there's still a lot of optimism as, as these manufacturers look forward. There's more interest in this space than ever before. There's more desire to invest in this space and to partner with these companies from like the private equity and the sponsor community. We're seeing large public entities and strategic companies show more interest in doing more in the medical device space. And we're seeing innovation, you know, continuing to drive new products, new innovation, cutting edge technologies in this space as well. And so, although the last couple of years have been, I think, challenging for this space, 
I'm looking at the silver lining here a little bit, and I think a lot of people in the industry are, and we know that, look, this is still a great space to be in. There, you know, There's some variability year to year from time to time, like now during the COVID years, but this is still an area where there's a lot of excitement, a lot of money being poured into this to develop new devices and things like that. And we think that's going to continue for, for years to come. On the outsourcing space, we're seeing growth for these contract manufacturers that outpaces the actual growth of like the whole med tech industry. You know, so I think I cited med tech industry itself is growing at like 6% a year. The the contract manufacturing space is growing somewhere around, I think it's north of 10%. I think it's close to 12% a year, depending on some subsector factors. And so we're we're seeing more outsourcing. We're seeing the companies in that space continue to grow and take market shares. There's consolidation and they're taking on more of the work from these OEMs. So we think it's going to be a good space to invest in, to the companies there are going to continue to grow over time. Great answer. Really nuanced. I guess we're going to have to find some more German machinists to staff up when the surge comes. And with those relative growth rates, you got to believe that the med tech sector will catch pharma, you know, sooner rather than later. We've talked about a lot of things today, but one thing we haven't talked about much is price. And we're in a debate in this country with all the new transparency regs and so on relating just the absolute cost levels for medical procedures and treatments and so on. I'm just curious whether you believe, particularly in areas that are going to commodify, like, you know, for joints and things like that, whether price is going to become a more important factor in the decision of which devices to use. And if the answer to that is yes, how is that going to play out in the sort of outsourcing of manufacturing, I, I assume that could be an accelerant just as well, because again, if you can manufacture more effectively and efficiently through outsourcing and price is more important than it's been historically, that's going to be yet another reason to outsource, right? So how does price factor into market dynamics as at this particular point in the industry's history? And where do you see it? factoring in going forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, this whole idea of of transparency and price, I think will definitely become more of an option, you know, or provide more options to consumers and the patients going forward. I was sitting here trying to remember a time where I've ever been offered, you know, for a medical procedure and I've had my fair share, you know, as a kid who was very active and broke a lot of bones and, and just, you know, was as active growing up. I'd never been put in a place where a physician offered like, hey, you know, we can put in this, you know, bone plate. You know, you have these options of plates or screws. This one's made by this company and costs X. This one's made by this company and costs Y, you know, or we can use these types of instruments, which you know are slightly more expensive, but will provide better healing options or whatever. And so I think that where medicine could be going and then trying to manage costs and manage care and, and this whole idea of value-based care and what offers the best option for patients and, and allowing patients to choose that. I also think that most patients, you know, really don't know what's best for them a lot of times. And although they may make that decision based on cost, at the end of the day, they don't know what questions to ask or how those different options really impact 
you know, their long-term health or the healing process after a major procedure or things like that. And, and as much as physicians, you know, try to explain that to them, I don't know that they will view any difference other than cost going forward. So I think like when it comes down to these types of devices, I think, yeah, like the cost that the end user definitely sees and if they're given the chance to choose is definitely coming into mind and in, in development of new devices or in existing products. And I think these major OEMs are looking at things going, wow, you know, is it worth it to have four or five different versions of this particular device, you know, or do we just need one or two to tech, you know, that makes it easier for patients to decide and, and we need to have a low cost version to compete with, you know, our competitors on things. So I think it's definitely going to become more of an issue. It, it hasn't historically been in the past. I think everyone wants to compete on, the quality or the, you know, the, all the bells and whistles on things. But yeah, I think long-term, it's definitely going to become more of an issue for manufacturers and the OEMs. I do think at the end of the day, it's it's going to come down to kind of the traditional definition of value. How do you get the best outcome at the lowest cost? And we seem to be as an industry getting better at figuring that out. We're a long way from full answers, but trying. And the more that becomes part of the process, I think the more outsourcing of manufacturing you'll see and the more effort by companies to deliver higher quality products at lower cost points rather than just trying to optimize on price alone. Anyway, Carl, time for your big, bold prediction about U.S. healthcare. What are we going to see sometime in the next five years? And you can talk about med tech if you'd like or branch beyond. Up to you. Yeah, I mean, so here's one thought that I have on some of this. I think over the next few years, people are going to look around and realize like we may be incentivizing doctors in the wrong way. And, and, you know, physicians or caregivers, as many of these large health systems and institutions and the payers too set up, you know, okay, here's how we're going to pay physicians by these, you know, I think it's RVUs or or different things, but, you know, we you have to do hit so many of these types of procedures or these or generate points by performing these procedures to get your minimum, you know, or you pay us back hospitals or whatever, and you get paid out more for these types of procedures. And, you know, this is kind of across the board. And so I have a lot of friends in the industry. I have family in the industry that are physicians and caregivers and stuff. And the feedback, you know, as I talk to them about this is that rather than doing, you know, all these other procedures, which are paid out at a lower value, most physicians in, in a lot of these areas are just doing the big procedures that pay out the most amount of money and get the most RVUs. And so when you're only paid to do one type of procedure or predominantly, then that's all that some of these physicians do. And that's all that they look for to the point where some patients, you know, and I'm not going to cast accusations, but I've read several articles and, and some things where I think there's a lot of physicians even saying like, oh, even where someone may not have an issue, it's like, oh, well, yeah, you need to do this and we're going to do this whole big procedure, which may not be necessary. And so a lot of the easier, cheaper, shorter ways of doing things are thrown out because <laughs> because it's not worth the physician's time to do them anymore. And so I think that's going to cause a real problem and the repercussions of this we're not going to realize until several years down the road. But I know now, like even young physicians, you know, in the field are like, well, I don't, you know, a lot of them don't even know how to do certain procedures or other things because they've only been taught how to do something on this one surgical robot or this one big type of procedure because 
that's what everybody's doing. And uh, I think it's going to cause some some challenges. Oh, oh, you are you are so spot on. What a great great prediction. So the more people begin to question the treatment decisions, the product decisions are being based on something other than the clients and the patients, the customer's best interests. And the more friction that gets created, the more tension there's going to be between those paying for procedures and those receiving them or those delivering them. Anyway, great point. And I guess we can land there on that optimistic note that markets actually may work more effectively in the future. So thank you, Carl, very much. I encourage our listeners to read Carl's and my commentary. MedTech follows pharma, the rapid growth of outsourcing and medical device manufacturing. But in the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and keep doing what you're doing to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all. And Carl, keep slaying dragons, man. 